the approach of Israel is the opposite of the pagan perspective. There is not a fate which removes freedom. Freedom is in the hands of man to whom is endowed free will. Much as Macbeth, in other words, interpreted signs the way his ambition and ego incentivized him to do so, Haman interpreted his lottery in the same way. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 264, Esther versus Macbeth. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Of all holidays in the Jewish calendar, it is the one inspired by the book of Esther, whose name is seemingly the most strange. Haman, newly appointed vizier of the Persian king, notes that a courtier, Mordechai the Jew, refuses to bow down to him. Haman, in turn, not only seeks a genocidal decree against the Jews from the king, he also engages in a mysterious ceremony that he hopes will help him find the most propitious date on which to destroy the Jews. Chapter 3, verse 6. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordechai alone, for they had told him the people of Mordechai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Achashverosh, the people of Mordechai. In the first month, that is, the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king Achashverosh, he cast a poor, that is, the lot, before Haman, from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar. And Haman said unto king Achashverosh, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws, therefore it is not for the king's prophets to suffer them. The word poor in this text is not Hebrew, it is Akkadian, which is why, as scholars note, the book of Esther translates it for us. He peel poor hu hagoral. Haman engaged in a poor, which is a lottery. Meaning, in seeking a propitious date on which to destroy the Jews, Haman, we are told, engaged in a form of divination or soothsaying, a form of pagan prediction known as a pur, in which pagan spirits were sought for guidance as to a day in which bloodshed ought to occur. The date chosen was the 13th of Adar. And in the end, as we will see in later lectures, on that date, a battle did indeed occur. But ultimately, the Jews defeated their enemies on that very day. Ultimately, the celebration of this entire story is named Purim, lotteries, in remembrance of the Pur, the act of divination, in which Haman engaged. But this lottery seems to be a minor part of the story. Why not name the holiday after Esther? And moreover, as many commentators question, if we are to name this day of Jewish celebration after the pagan ritual known as Pur, why do we instead utilize the plural form, Purim? To answer these questions, we return again to the bard, as we once again bring Shakespeare to Shushan. In studying the ritual of pagan prediction in which Haman engages, let us look to a Shakespearean play where pagan prediction also appears as a theme. Macbeth, a Scottish warrior with the noble title Thane of Glam, is returning from battle with his fellow warrior Banquo when he encounters mysterious witches who call Macbeth not only Thane of Glam but also Thane of Cawdor and future king of Scotland. As for Banquo, the witches inform him that his descendants will ultimately rule Scotland as well. The witches then disappear and Macbeth is suddenly informed that King Duncan has made him Macbeth Thane of Cawdor. Macbeth takes this as confirmation of the witches' predictive power, indicating to him that he is also meant to be king of Scotland. But how can he be king if Duncan is king? Macbeth wonders whether he's supposed to do nothing and wait to ascend the throne, 
just as he was made Thane of Cawdor through no actions of his own, or whether the witches are telling him that he is supposed to seize the throne by committing regicide. In the end, at the urging of his wife, Lady Macbeth, Macbeth murders King Duncan. He and his wife, as we have previously discussed in other episodes, ultimately become haunted by what they have done. And Macbeth is ultimately killed, and the murdered king's son, Malcolm, becomes king of Scotland. What is the central theme of Macbeth? For the Shakespearean scholar Emma Smith, the play seeks to leave unresolved whether all that occurs is a series of events brought about by the witches, or Macbeth alone, having freely acted, bears the guilt of all that occurs with his wife, Lady Macbeth. Emma Smith's line of interpretation is, I think, fascinating, but there is another way of reading this play which appeals to me more. For Professor Marjorie Garber, Macbeth's freedom always remains, because what the witches pronounce is always obscure. Their words can be interpreted in different ways. Speaking of the witches, Garber writes, quote, They hint, they speak in riddles, and they leave their hearers to decipher answers to the riddles they propose. Plainly, these witches are not causes. Banquo, who has heard that his sons will be kings, does not immediately go off to commit murder to fulfill the prophecy. But Macbeth does. In fact, like all omens and portents in Shakespeare, the witches exist to be interpreted, end quote. What this means, and I believe Garber is correct, is that when predictions are made in Macbeth, there's still room left for human beings to act with freedom. Macbeth is destined to be king, but whether that happens in a proper manner after the death of Duncan, or whether it is achieved through regicide, lies within the realm of Macbeth's own free choice. Macbeth chooses wrongly, wickedly, immorally. Conversely, Banquo's descendants are destined to rule, and Banquo makes the correct choice. A similar case can be found later in the play. After murdering the king, Macbeth goes out to seek the witches again to find out if his crown is secure. They, in turn, tell Macbeth that no man born of woman can kill him which Macbeth takes to mean that he is utterly invulnerable. Ultimately, the man who kills Macbeth, Macduff, informs Macbeth that he was not born in regular fashion, but was, quote-unquote, torn from the womb. And that is why he is able to kill Macbeth. Which form of the witch's prediction was correct? Was Macbeth to reign unchallenged as king, or was he to be punished by Macduff? It all depended on whether Macduff had the moral courage to embrace his own destiny and challenge Macbeth, which in the end he did. Garber, utilizing the play's description of the witches as the weird sisters, writes as follows, quote, Signs exist to be interpreted. Macbeth need not interpret the weird sisters as inciting him to murder. They merely say he will be king. It is his own subconscious, of which they are a theatrical counterpart, that drives him to kill Duncan and take the throne, end quote. A striking parallel, then, can be found in the story of Haman's prediction. The divination leads Haman to designate the 13th of Adar as a day to wage war against the Jews. And in the end, of course, the Jews defeat their enemies. We often read this story thinking that Haman's prediction was entirely wrong. But perhaps there is another way to see it. Rabbi Yoel bin Nun put it this way, quote, The two most critical elements of the Megillah the initial decree of destruction and the eventual decree of celebration are established based upon the drawing of lots. The text gives no indication that the lottery was mistaken. Based on what we know about the culture of the time, it is quite reasonable to assume that Haman arranged a meeting with his advisors and astrologers to determine an appropriate date for the systematic killing of the Jews. 
their decision was never proven wrong. And he adds, only it was the Jews who destroyed their enemies, rather than the other way around. The day chosen was a correct one. The astrologer made but one critical mistake. He confused the victors with those that were defeated. End quote. In the end, then, for Rabbi Benun, the tale of Purim is about the triumph of human freedom and heroism over the pagan forces of fate. The pagan predictors assumed that the 13th of Adar was designated for the destruction of the Jews. But in the end, through the freedom and courage of Esther, an entirely different meaning of that day emerged. As Rabbi Eagle Ariel writes, if we choose to name our holiday after Haman's lottery, it is because we seek to thereby highlight the Jewish rejection of the pagan perspective of pure fate. We seek to emphasize, as he puts it in Hebrew, that tefisat Yisrael hafucha betachlit, the approach of Israel is the opposite of the pagan perspective. Eng zeirak duma, there is not a fate which removes freedom. Hakol masur bide adam Freedom is in the hands of man to whom is endowed free will. Much as Macbeth, in other words, interpreted signs the way his ambition and ego incentivized him to do so, Haman interpreted his lottery in the same way. And if we call the Jewish holiday Purim, lotteries, plural, it is to emphasize, I think, the double nature of the meaning of Haman's sign. We celebrate the double meaning of the prediction. We emphasize that whereas Haman assumed that fate had assured him victory. In the end, the true result was decided by the freedom reflected by the hero of the story. We are celebrating, in other words, the heroism of Esther, who, through courage and free will, defied any purported fate. Our comparing and contrasting Esther and Macbeth can thus lead us to another insight. Scholars have noted that there are hints in Macbeth that Shakespeare was inspired, perhaps just a bit, by the biblical story of Saul, for that is the only biblical tale involving a witch and her prediction. Saul, at the end of his reign, suddenly finds that God has stopped speaking to him. As we have seen in an earlier episode, the book of Samuel describes how, facing a battle against the Philistines, Saul, in desperation, sought out a witch, a soothsayer. What is fascinating is that Esther and Mordechai, according to the book of Esther, are descendants of Kish, Saul's father. They are from the family of Saul, and indeed seem to be descendants of Shimi, the member of Saul's family who rebelled against David. There are all sorts of hints in the book of Esther that Esther's and Mordechai's actions redeem their family name, show that they have learned from their family's past. And we can now find another way in which this is reflected. For Esther and Mordechai face a threat, just as Saul faces a threat, preparing to battle against the Philistines. And just as God has stopped speaking to Saul, God has stopped speaking to Esther and Mordechai, though for a very different reason. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik has stressed that Esther is one of the very few books of the Bible that was written as the age of prophecy was coming to an end. Thus, as we will discuss in a later episode, Esther and Mordechai are not given any guidance by a prophet. Here, however, it is the enemy, Haman, who seeks out divination, whereas Esther faces the challenge with free will and fortitude. Thus is a previous sin in Esther and Mordechai's family reversed. Whereas Saul sought out a witch of his own, Esther defies pagan practices and in her freedom and heroism defeats Haman. We celebrate then on Purim Esther's free will and the courageous way in which she faced up to a most daunting challenge.
Fans of the Lord of the Rings author J.R.R. Tolkien have noted that Tolkien himself seems to have been inspired by Macbeth. Just as Macbeth hears from the witches that no one born of woman can kill him, and he therefore assumes that he is invulnerable, so too one of the villains Tolkien gives us is the Witch King of Agmar, of whom in the Lord of the Rings it was prophesied that not by the hand of man shall he fall. The Witch King ignored the potential double meaning here and assumed that he could not be harmed. And in the end, he was brought down by two heroes in the Lord of the Rings who were not men. He is first wounded by the hobbit Mary, and then, as he proclaims, Thou fool, no living man may hinder me, one of the warriors who has come in disguise suddenly reveals herself to be Princess Eowyn of the Kingdom of Rohan, who proudly proclaims, But no living man am I, you are looking upon a woman. And it is she who strikes down the witch king, and victory in the battle is achieved. Here, too, there is another meaning to the prediction and an egotistical misinterpretation by a villain leads to that villain's downfall. As we continue to journey through the Book of Esther, we will see more misinterpretations and faulty predictions by villains. When King Ahasuerush will ask Haman what should be done to someone whom the king wishes to honor, Haman will immediately think that the reference is to his own honor. But in the end, his own answer to the king's question will lead to Haman's degradation. After Haman will be forced to parade Mordechai through the street on the king's horse, Haman's family will gloomily predict, You will surely fall before him, before Mordechai. But that is not really what happened either. In the end, Haman will fall before Esther. Haman's family assumed that it was a man who would defeat Haman. In the end, it was no man. As for us, celebrating Esther's example, we seek to be inspired by her to freely embrace courageous choices in our own lives. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.